Would you open your Bibles tonight to the letter to the Romans, sixth chapter of Romans, beginning with verse 20. You'll find this on page 943 in your pew Bibles if you're using those tonight. Hear now the word of God from Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 20 and continuing to the end of the chapter. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Join me in prayer. Our Father, you who formed us in our mother's wombs and knew our unformed parts in the darkness of the womb, you know our needs better than we do, O God. And so we pray that through your word and by the working of your spirit, you will meet all our true needs tonight in Jesus Christ. Teach us of him. Show us his glory. And show us the power and joy of our union with him. For we pray this way in his name. Amen. Well, it's been a rather sobering ride on the Romans Railroad these last several months, hasn't it? No stops in Candyland, no trips to Disney World, no excursions to the state fair. The Romans Express instead has taken us right into the hell of our human condition, into the universal, inescapable, unfixable, corrupting condition of our human sin. For a brief while, in the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, we got a reprieve from talking about the way of our human wickedness as faith and the saving grace of God in Christ came into view. But the theological train tracks have turned yet again. And here in chapter 6 and 7, we're back into the old war zone of sin. These chapters that we're in now mainly deal or substantially deal with the false receipt of grace. That is the common but faithless thought that if our salvation through the grace of God in Jesus Christ is truly a sure thing, that is if it cannot be lost by us, and it can't, well, Why should we not go on living, then, a life of sin? We're going to be saved anyway, right? What such a response as that ignores, of course, is that the grace of God is always a transforming grace. It cannot not change the heart of anyone who truly receives it. And no one who is truly saved can think in that way I was describing a moment ago, not for any length of time. 
That's part of what I think Paul is emphasizing in our passage tonight, our brief reading from Romans 6. Paul begins by saying that the readers in the church in Rome were all once slaves of sin. You know, I thought of this very verse last weekend when Nancy and I were up in Raleigh to participate in the baptism of our granddaughter there. On Saturday afternoon before the Lord's Day, we went walking with our our two granddaughters in a double stroller all around the neighborhood where our son lives there in Raleigh. And eventually we came and walked right by an enormous women's prison with high fences capped by a roll of awful sharp razor wire. And I thought to myself as I was doing that, that this is kind of a, of a picture in my mind of the tragedy of human bondage to sin. Sin that has taken somebody's daughter, somebody's sister, somebody's mother perhaps, and imprisoned her in a condition where they cannot escape. Indeed, it would be easier for those incarcerated women to climb through that razor wire than to escape their sinful condition. But of course, the real terror in this is that all of us, not just those behind the razor wire, but all of us, including those precious granddaughters in our stroller, are also incarcerated in the prison of our sinful nature. We are prisoners to our passions, slaves to sin, By nature. And so really, if you think about it, we actually have more in common with those women in the prison than we differ from them. And I do really mean that, by the way. If you don't believe that, then you don't know God's nature and you don't really know your own by nature. And like prisoners in Raleigh, there's no escape that we can find. There's no escape that we can devise. Surely that's part of the reason Paul calls it slavery. We could not, in our natural condition, we could not not sin. Paul does not say here, if you were slaves to sin. He says to the Roman church, when you were slaves to sin. And so I want you to really understand that this second person pronoun he uses here, you, you were slaves to sin, means that the bad effects that others may have upon us does not mean we are not responsible for our own sins. Bad fathers, bad mothers, the oppression of our ancestors, the meanness of bullies, the gossip of girls, the materialism and vulgarity of a capitalist culture, the pot we smoked, and the booze we guzzled, however much they may have influenced us, none of them are to blame for our own sins. Because you and I were born slaves to sin. As much as we might want to, we can't rightly sing the funny little song by Anna Russell, a, a well-known British comedian, comedian, she, she wrote this. 
At three, I had a feeling of ambivalence toward my brothers. And so it follows naturally, I poisoned all my lovers. But now I'm happy. I have learned the lesson this has taught, that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. No, that is not the song of any believer. We are willing slaves to sin by nature. Next, Paul says to the church in Rome, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now, I want you to understand that what Paul is is beginning to argue here is all about the real-world rotten results of sin. And why would he need to remind us of the rotten fruit of sin? Or we might just say the rotten results of our sin? Well, first of all, Paul knows the reputation that righteousness has. Bear with me in the argument here. Paul understands that righteousness has a reputation in the world. Righteousness, people assume, means you're no fun. It means you have limited your experiences in life. It means you live in a straitjacket. It prevents you from being the true you. It may be admired sometimes, grudgingly by people, but it is rarely loved by them. He knows the reputation problem that righteousness has. And so to counteract this, he says, when you were slaves of sin, that is, before you followed Christ, you were, he says, free in regard to righteousness. Back then, righteousness, it just wasn't your thing, was it? You were fine being above average morally as you thought of yourself. After all, you weren't behind the razor wire at the prison. So you couldn't be all that bad, really. You didn't worry about righteousness and holiness like those religious people. Paul says you were free in terms with regard to righteousness. You were unconstrained. You were unfettered. You were independent. You were a modern man. You were a liberated woman. And then I can just imagine it in my head, the Apostle Paul doing his best Dr. Phil imitation. Paul basically says, and just how was that working for you? (laughs) How did that go for you? How'd you like being a free sinner? Look at this piercing question in verse 21. But what fruit, now you think of the word results in its place there, what results were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. In other words, how was that righteousness-free way of life really working for you then? Do you not remember how miserable, how alienated, how bored you were? How unsatisfying life was. How aimless life felt. Just living for the weekend, not living for the Sabbath. What results did a freedom from righteousness produce in your life? And then Paul says, because the end of those things, those sinful things of which you're now ashamed that you once did, the end of those things is death. 
Now the word end here in the Greek is telos, from which we get the word telescope. It speaks of something uh, that's at the end. It's, it can mean purpose or end of something, the final result of something. It may not be near you now, but it's coming to you in the way that you're going. The end of our sins, Paul says, is death. And that spiritual death actually begins in this life as our souls increasingly deaden to God, to the way of his divine love, to God's glory. Progressively, our souls become dead. They deaden progressively. The more we persist in our sins through the years uninterrupted, the more we become what I might call the spiritual walking dead. While our little granddaughters and grandsons may already have the seed of death within them through original sin at their birth, they are not as dead as old men and women are who have persisted in their sins for years, even decades. Sin always brings a relentless spiritual hardening that the Bible equates with death, followed by a physical death, followed by a kind of eternal death. That is why Jesus had to die, descend into hell, to redeem us from it all. Indeed, this is grim stuff we're looking at tonight. This is the the Romans Express. But it doesn't end here, and help is on the way. Notice in verse 22 that it begins with one of the Bible's blessed buts. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. See, now Paul's reminding the Roman church of their new standing, their new status, their new condition in Christ. And a lot is implied, I think, in this sentence. First thing is, there are only two conditions possible. There's two ways to use a Bible word for human beings. You're either slaves of sin and you're receiving now some of the wages of it. Or you are slaves of God and have received by faith the great gift that he gives. Like Psalm 1, which says there are just two ways. The way of the wicked scoffer and the way of the one who is rooted like a tree by a river in the grace of God and bears good fruit from that watering. Or like Jesus, who said there are two gates, the wide gate that leads to destruction, the narrow gate that leads to life. There's two roads, a hard road and an easy road. There are two houses. One is built on sand, the other is built on the rock. Paul is also saying it is one way or it is the other. There's no neutrality in the whole universe. If you think of yourself as neutral about God, then you are most assuredly... Even tonight, you are an actual enemy of God. If you are not for him with all you've got, then you're surely against him. By his very nature, his supremacy, his unique attributes, God can't be honored with lukewarm affections. 
Mere fondness for the topic of God insults him. You know, to, to use the lingo of our day, you know, we hit like on something. On the, you can't just put like over Christianity and assume you're right with God. Ultimately, God must be worshipped or he must be warred against. You will do one or the other. I will do it too. Only two ways. No neutral ground. Joshua, of course, famously said to the Israelites at Shechem at that great renewal of their covenant, he said, choose this day whom you'll serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Either the gods or God. Choose today whom you will serve. Two ways and only two. And so clearly, clearly you're going to be, uh, in a spiritual sense, a slave to sin or a slave to God in this life. One results in continuing and ever-increasing spiritual hardness and wickedness, the other in a growing sanctification or personal holiness, accompanied by a tender-heartedness towards God your Father and an increasing love for other people, especially those who are in the household of faith. And the ends, the, the telos, in each case is radically different. As Paul says in our passage tonight, one results in death, the other in life. One in hell, the other in heaven. They could not be more different, these two ways of being. And so I have to ask you at this point, are you a slave to God in Christ tonight? Now human slavery is typically an accursed thing in so many ways. As C.S. Lewis said, it's not so much that no one's worthy of being enslaved, it's that no one is worthy to be another person's master except one. There is one. Jesus Christ is worthy to be a master to us. Slavery to him is freedom of the best sort. It is, and so I, I would ask it this way, is your heart enthralled and, and, and loyal to Christ this evening? As the hymn says, do you sit in willing bonds at his feet? What a, what a culturally, countercultural hymn that is. Look at what having Christ as your master brings to your life. All those old results that you were getting when you yourself were sitting on the the throne in your life. Those things that Paul says you're now ashamed of and wish nobody knew about. They no longer define your life. You're now a son of God. You're a daughter of the Lord. What's more, your life has verifiable fruits. Or as we would say, uh, observable results. Look at verse 22 again. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. These, beloved, these are two luscious fruits, two remarkable results. The first being 
sanctification. Having been set apart by God, you are becoming more like Him now. You're becoming more Christ-like, more holy, and without any of the starched collar prissiness or nose-in-the-air superiority that people typically associate with those words. In other words, you're becoming beautiful. And it would never occur to you that his grace to you gives you some kind of license to sin. James Bond, you know James Bond, he had a license to kill from the British government. That's what his 007 signification signify. But no Christians have a license from God to sin ever. And you know that in your heart. Before I go on to that second result of slavery to Christ, let me say one more word about sanctification, the process of becoming more godly. There are no shortcuts listed here in this passage or anywhere else in Scripture. To use the language of our time, there are no hacks for holiness. There are no shortcuts, no tricks, no secrets that aren't known. Paul assumes here that the people are being sanctified simply by being in union with Christ through a living faith. That's it. That's it. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once commented when he was responding to someone who was looking for a, a second blessing in the Christian life, you know, a, a higher level of Christian spirituality than the run-of-the-mill Christian could have. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said in, in a way that he would, he said, you have already received all things that pertain unto a life of godliness. You do not need another experience You do not need some new gift. You have been given everything in Christ. You are in him from the moment at the beginning of your Christian life. No, you you are just a slacker and a cad. You're lazy and indolent. Indeed, a liar if you are not living this life that you claim to have in Christ. And so the key to sanctification for every believer, and this is so important, the key to sanctification is not in trying to become something that you are not yet. The gospel does not tell us to become what we are not, but will yet be. Rather, The Bible tells us to be what we are in Christ. To live out the gift of our sonship which we already possess in the beloved one, in the beloved son Jesus. And and I don't know about you, but I believe that is incredibly good news. To me it is. Isn't it wonderful to think of it, brothers and sisters? We are to become what we already are in principle in Christ. So Christ-likeness, Paul says, is first. The second result 
of being a slave to our Savior is eternal life. Paul says it is the end, the goal, the telos of all this sanctification of the Christian life is eternal life. Life on top of life. If you're an elect believer, you begin to get down payments on that goal, that telos of eternal life now, if you're in union with Jesus. The Bible says that you've been born again. That's new life. According to the Greek verb tense in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in, in John's gospel, you are continually being born anew. You're infused with supernatural life from God. And the Greek in John's gospel also says in that same chapter, chapter 3, that we now possess eternal life. Fuller life is yet to come, but true eternal life is now ours in Christ. In other words, and this, this is such a glorious thought, we have already begun our eternal spiritual life with the Son of God. If you're a believer here tonight, you are living in eternal life. The end of the ages is upon us. Pentecostal spirit is ours, and we possess heaven in our hearts already. We're not the spiritual walking dead, for we are being transformed day by day into the likeness of Christ, even as our physical form may be wasting away. Look at some of the elderly saints in our church, as Pastor Ben was saying this morning, this aroma of holiness that they have. Look at, look at Doug and Margie. Look at Letha and Rick and Ellen and Betsy and Jean and so many others here. Are they not becoming more alive in Christ every day as you know them? Jesus said of us, even though we die, yet shall he live, and he who believes in me shall never die. And finally, like the explosive end of an already pretty glorious fireworks show, we come to the climactic verse, verse 23, this famous verse, this gospel in miniature, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that not the very confession that you parents would wish for your own precious children to make? Is that not the confession that you would wish your own lips would make even as you die and pass out of this earthly life? Is that not the confession that in some sense is at the very core of all authentic biblical ministry? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
The word wages here is really interesting. In the original language, I, I found this out this week. Uh, James Boyce illuminated uh, this word for me. The word was used to speak of the daily food ration given to a Roman soldier for his service that particular day. The daily, actually the literal term is fish ration. So this was not a paycheck at the end of the month, not a big bonus at the end of the year, much less the winning of the lottery. It is really the opposite of a telos, a goal or end result, as we saw in verse 21. These are but the daily results, the daily payback of sin. A can of tuna fish is your payment for your sin, except it's it's rancid. It's rancid tuna. It's the daily, the daily bit of death that people bring to their immortal souls when they do not embrace the Lord, their gracious creator, with a lively faith through Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord that those who are engrafted into grace, by grace in their Savior, receive not this daily dose of death, but Life, life, every day we receive life. Paul's emphasis here in this second clause is uh, the great singular gift we might think of life in Christ. Paul is saying that while the wages of death are uh, for, for daily sins is a daily death, the free gift, the great gift, the one saving gift, From God is eternal life in and through the one man, the only God-man, Jesus Christ. It doesn't come in installments. It comes all at once as we believe the gospel. Absolute sufficiency and bottomless grace are bound up in this famous sentence from the Bible. In contrast to the rancid can of tuna you'll get every day by serving the devil, worlds of glory and beauty and love and light and song and personal freedom are what you'll get with God. You get his people. You get life. Life forever. And you get it all. Freely. So, everything that we have is a part of this gift. Think of what he does for us in this life. The saving conviction that we're sinners and that Jesus died for us. The saving faith that his life and death are a totally sufficient substitute for us. The saving hope in his resurrection and ascension and his current intercession for us in heaven. The sanctifying ability to personally die more and more to our sinful behavior and live more and more as sons of God in righteousness. The discipline and the delight of living in sacred community with others in his church where we hear about a a ten and a half pound baby and we don't just say yay, we say praise God for a covenant child in the household of God. The glorious expectation above all this. That he will come again in great glory, ushering in the new heavens and the new earth. All of it is a part of this great gift from God to us, received by faith. For the wages of sin is death, 
But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This seals it. As Paul said back in the fourth chapter, the reason it's all by grace, the reason it comes as a gift is because salvation can be guaranteed in that way to all God's offspring, to all his elect, that is. An infallible redemption guaranteed to an always failing people. And then finally, these last words in this famous passage, perhaps the most important of all. It's all found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As the Puritan father, Matthew Henry, said, the gift of God is eternal life, and this gift is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ purchased it, he said. Christ prepared it. Christ prepares us for it, and he preserves us to it. He is the all in all in our salvation. Brothers and sisters, I'll close with this. I have mercifully, by his enabling grace alone, believed that all my adult life. But there was one moment in which I experienced it with such technicolor clarity. An early September day, over seven years ago, I was about to be wheeled into surgery for my heart disease. Many of you remember this. I remember how it had all come upon us so fast. It went from heart concerns to a heart emergency as these grim-faced doctors conducted their tests on me. I was put at the head of the line of patients waiting for heart surgery to get immediate surgery by the head of the Novant Heart program. And it all felt so hurried to Nancy and myself. No time to make plans for what would happen if I did not make it. No time to make plans for what would happen if I did. No time to work or seek to heal any strained relationships I had. No time to study, to pray, to prepare, to meditate. Hardly time to even confess my sins to God. The sense that it was all so suddenly upon us and the feeling that we should be doing something to prepare but that we were not prepared for it. Who could be? As I sat in my hospital gown moments before the orderly came to wheel me to the surgery, Nancy pulled out her phone and listened, turned to a Bible app And we listened to the reading of Psalm 139 and Romans chapter 8. And my friends, faith moved such mountains in those minutes. As the word was read, we were completely overwhelmed with the sense of salvation being guaranteed to all God's offspring, even us, because of its freely given nature. There was nothing we could do say, prove to God in that moment. The dam of our tears broke and our fears were washed away in that sudden flood and overwhelming joy took its place. It was, I do believe, I really do believe it was the happiest I have ever been in my life. 
Because in that sterile little hospital room that morning, we both knew beyond any doubt that while the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you understand, it wasn't because God told me I was going to survive the surgery. That would not have made me as happy as I was. It was just Christ. It was Christ, our life. It was Christ, our all in all. And then just a couple of minutes later, my dear friend, Pastor Nathan Trice, saw me in the hallway as they rolled me toward the surgical room. And we spoke briefly to each other about our mutual love for each other. Much later, weeks and weeks later, Nathan said to me, Dean, I've never met a man so happy to be going under the knife. It was like you had just seen Jesus. And I responded, well, brother, that's because I had. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Won't you pray with me? Oh, Lord, we are indeed such a gifted people, not in ourselves at all, but in the sufficiency of the gift you give us in Jesus. It's a life-giving gift. It's an utterly free gift, but not free to you. You poured out your very life, Lord Jesus Christ, that we might drink it in by faith even tonight. And so would you come and by your Spirit enable us to draw close to you, to refresh our union with you, to give us a new liveliness in our faith. For we pray for this as we pray for all things. In your name, amen.